You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. Back when I went to college at Stockton State, down there in Pomona, New Jersey, me and my friends, we never went home on Friday. A lot of kids in the school would leave as soon as they got done their class, but we were thinking, you know what? We're in college. We're away from our parents. We're gonna party. So every Friday, as soon as our classes were over, we'd go back to our dorm, open up a beer or whatever you're we drinking, and we would put my guest's song on because to this day, Mike Reno of Loverboy sang Working for the Weekend, and that is synonymous for anybody who gets done on a Friday and punches a time card, locks up their office, or just blows off smoke. And I'm happy to have him, and it's Mike Reno. How you doing, Mike? I'm good, Steve. How are you, man? I'm doing well. You know, it is so funny, that song, to this day, I mean, you must be amazed. It still stands up as a signal. It's a signifying fact of people going, hey, man, we're done. Let's have fun. It is definitely a five o'clock on Friday type of song. Everywhere. I mean, it's insane. All all, all the mileage it's got. It's a great song. And I, I hear it once in a while and I still think it sounds great. You know, it really sounds great. I think it attributes that to Bob Rock on on the engineering side and Bruce Fairburn on the producing side. Great team. Now, how did you guys come up with that song? I know you did. You write the lyrics, or Paul, or how did how did it all come about? Uh, the song was written, started by Paul, and finished by me and Paul. Uh, basically, it was a note. We noticed people. On the weekend, especially around five o'clock, six o'clock, they were walking with the case of beer and some dry cleaning, <laughs> and they're going back to their apartments or their homes, and you could see it all over the street, and it was just happening, and it was like they were waiting for the weekend to start. So initially, it started like that, uh, waiting. You know, they're waiting for the weekend. You know, like waiting with bated breath, kind of thing. So Paul and I are. are working on it and it's, it sounded pretty good we get in the studio I strap on the headphones and I start singing the song and then when the chorus came up I went everybody's working for the weekend the whole control booth stood up and went oh my god that's so much better you know what I mean it was just one of those kind of things it happened very naturally and it was just I closed my eyes I wasn't looking down at the, the lyric sheet anymore I just went for what was in my heart and that, that's the way it ended up now, I want to talk about your great career, but you have a new single out. Tell, tell me about release. And I watched the video today, and it's funny because, you know, and I want to talk about this because videos have changed so much. I mean, it looks like, I don't know what you're in. I don't, is that like it's uh, an addict or something? But, but when, you're, when the video is on, but videos have changed. But tell me about the new song because you guys recorded it out of pretty much nowhere, right? Right. This is the first time that we've ever had to record like this, Steve. Uh, because we couldn't go anywhere, we just recorded uh, the internet. Like Paul started the song and, and had a, a, the basic structure of the song, as he usually does. Then he, 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 him and I are the only two that got together. So we got together, we worked on the lyrics, we tried a few things out, and then we were in my music room up in Vancouver. Uh, like you said, above the cars, you know, the cars were below, the, the music room's up, upstairs in the garage, and a very comfortable setting. We got the mic set up, boom, we sing it, and then all of a sudden we have to send it to our keyboard player. He throws some keyboards on it, and we send it via the internet. Then we send it to Winnipeg, uh, put bass on it, that's where our bass was living. And then we send it to North Carolina, where our drummer is, and he puts the drums on it. Very high tech, 
they had to hire a, a session guy to figure out how to do that. But they did it. Then everything got sent back to Paul. Paul throws his harmonies on. He throws a guitar solo in and boom, starts mixing it. And then he sends it to me and I said, hell, this, this song's starting to sound pretty good. Now, we've been doing this for quite a while, but what we've been doing is releasing singles rather than releasing a whole album. Because singles to me is... Uh, People only have enough patience nowadays for a single here and there. I, I, you know, everything happens so fast. People aren't going to listen to 11 songs, I don't think. So what we're doing is releasing singles and just letting people have a little fun, letting them know we're still around. Now, as an artist, what is that like? Because, you know, I come from a generation where albums, man, you got the album and you guys had the great cover art and you, when you bought an album, you know, for me, it was like I spent my money. Every song better be good. And right. for, for you, for crafting it, I mean, does it take away in your artistry that now you're doing a single where you, in the beginning people would rave about your albums? I mean, how do you look at that as an artist? Well, you know, it's, it's, we lived in a good time. I'm with you. I used to do exactly the same thing. You get the new Uriah Heap album. You put the album on side one. You open up the album and you pull out the sleeve and you read the lyrics and you see the guys in the band and what everybody looks like. You know, that was the greatest time in music. And to be honest with you, I'm kind of sad to see it's gone. And it's changed. I'm with you. It's a whole different world now. And like I said, we didn't even get in the same room to record this song. That's how crazy it is. I mean... Totally not my comfort zone. My comfort zone is to get in a room with five guys, put out an album, take pictures, show everybody everything new, put the lyrics on the back. That's where I'm at too, Steve. But, you know, that's just the way things are. They're changing. Things are disappearing. Now, in, in this new song, Release, I know you wrote some of the lyrics. When did that come on board? You know, I read, I, I read some of the lyrics you wrote. But from the beginning, I mean, I always wonder, because I have no musical talent. But you, you get the you get the sound, and then I believe the title was already there. So do you just go into your room and close your eyes, or do you just lay down and all of a sudden something pops into your head? I mean, how did you get the lyrics? Well, here's what here's what the song's about, Steve. We're recognizing our fans in this song. The whole song is basically a recognition of the fans, and we play for them. We stand up in front of our stacks. We're all dressed in black. We're looking. We're looking at you. We're thinking about all the things we've done, and we're we're thanking the audience for being there after all these years. That's the whole essence of the song, and it's all about um, coming back. We need a release, especially after all this COVID crap. I mean, we've just. I'm just about done with that. I don't know about you, but boy, I've sure had enough. <laughs> it's. I don't even want to talk about it. You know, it's so funny. Well, I, I bought tickets for to see you guys on the tour in the Philadelphia area in August. And I'm just sitting there because I bought tickets last year. And then all of a sudden, the concerts all disappear, and you're and you're so pissed off. And then you finally get back to a concert, and the crowd is so amped. What has it been like for you, not performing? Because you guys perform a lot. Do you know it's been the toughest two years of my life on one hand, and then on the other hand, I've had a chance to do some things that I never had time to do before. I got a beautiful home I live in. I got some nice cars. I used to not be able to really drive them much. You know, I'd come home from a tour and I'd drive them for a few days and I'd kind of rest up. Now I got to know the house. I got to know the neighborhood a little better. I got to see the cars. You know, it's kind of like on one hand I miss the touring. The other hand, 
I'm learning that there's other things in life besides touring all the time. Because touring is, is not for not for everybody. You got to get in a plane and a bus and a hotel room. You got a suitcase full of clothes. After about a month, you get sick of all these clothes. You want to give them to the chambermaid and go buy all new clothes. I mean, I got so many suitcases at home. My wife thinks I got to go to Suitcase Anonymous. You know what I mean? <laughs> so being at home for a little while and doing some things with friends and family has been kind of nice for me. But I am ready to get back. I'm. Uh, it's like the joke is over. I'm ready to go back. Let's hope that everything runs smooth this summer because this is going to be one hell of a tour. Now, when did you know you wanted to play music? Were you a little kid? Were you instrumental as a little kid? I mean, how did that start? Because, you know, some people, you hear, oh, we started when we were 18, or, you know, some people say we saw the Beatles and it changed our lives. What made you want to become a performer? Because you were also up in Canada, so you weren't getting, I don't know if you were getting the Ed Sullivan show or, or any of those other shows. I mean, what made you get into music? We had everything everybody else had in Canada. You know, I want everybody to know that we get television up there and all that good stuff. We saw Ed Sullivan. I saw the Beatles. The Beatles. I wrote a letter to the Beatles. I wanted to be the drummer for the Beatles. I never got a return letter, but I put that letter up there. Um, I picked up a set of drums when I was 11 years old for money I earned on my morning paper route. In the morning, I delivered 67 papers before school. You roll them up, tap them down put them in the canvas bag, put the canvas bag on the front of the bike, you do your route, you throw them up onto the steps, you got to go collect every couple of weeks. You know, I earned a living doing that at 11. So I bought a set of drums. My brother was a guitar player, older brother, and he was the singer. He taught me how to sing all the background stuff while playing the drums. And I was even in this band temporarily when his drummer disappeared in a... uh, he just ran off to get married with his girlfriend and I was left holding the, holding the drumsticks, baby. And I knew all the songs because I used to sit there and watch him practice. I could sing all the harmonies. I knew all the beats. So they put me on the drums. So I started at a very early age. And uh, when I was 13, I was doing drum solos, and playing with the band and singing all the background harmonies. And shortly thereafter, I started my own bands as a kid. But I still stayed on the drums and did all the lead vocals from the drums. But then there was this era where it changed and they wanted you know, Deep Purple were out and Led Zeppelin. They wanted, you know, everybody wanted a lead singer to get out from behind the drums. So I was talked out of, out of playing the drums, which really kind of was tough for me because, you know, when you're sitting behind the drums, you got a little something going on there, right? When you're standing up there all by yourself, that was a little tough for me to take right off the bat. But I ended up getting used to it. So that's really how it started for me. Well, now, how does how does one find out they have the voice to sing? I mean, because everyone thinks they can sing, and, you know, I can't. I mean, I try to sing, and people are like, what are you even singing, dude? But, like, for <laughs> you, I mean, you're a younger kid, and your voice your voice is going to change, of course. But how did you, like, how, did someone say, you know, and you're young. You're Like you said, you were 13 and 15. Did someone say, hey, Mike, man, you got a really good voice. How did you transition into that at a young age? I guess my brother, when he was teaching me how to sing backgrounds, he just says, yeah, you've got a good voice, you can sing. And so I just started singing. I remember one of the first songs that was uh, Monday, Monday. I think that was by the Mamas and the Papas. I think so. Monday, Monday, sha-la, la-la-la-la. That was my part. My brother looked at me and he says, that was good. So, you know what I mean? I I had confidence right off the bat. I didn't know if 
if I was really very good. But sometimes if you if they throw the ball, you catch it, right? Now, when did you sit there and say, okay, I'm getting serious about this stuff? Because as it's like anything, you know, you can go to high school, you can be an athlete, but you know you're not going to go pro. You can go to high school, you can be in a band, you can be a marching band, you can play drums. You don't know what's going to happen. When did you sit there and say, this this is my calling. I mean, I'm really good at this. Well, the 17, when I finished uh, grade 12, a lot of my friends went off to university. It didn't bother me one bit. Instead of uh, getting upset by it, I bought a van with money I'd earned working for the Parks parks Board, taking care of uh, all the state and provincial parks. And I remember earning enough money to buy this beautiful Ford Econoline, like a 1971. Fixed it up. And I said, the music scene in Calgary, Alberta, is just humming. Everybody plays in every bar, every nightclub, every uh, like every day of the week. I, I went up there and I started a band, and that's all I wanted to do. I had uh, no intention of going to university. And I went out there and started a band, and, and we did really well. We played up. I had my own house. I rented it, of course, but it was no big deal house, but it was my own vehicle out front, my own house. I had concerts constantly. I, I made something happen from it, and then it just kind of went from there. Now, were you playing originals and covers or both? Because I know in, like, the U.S., a lot of times original bands couldn't get work. You know, that's just because people are like, oh, you know, you go to the Jersey Shore. You No one wants to sit there and drink beers and hear, you know, something original except the people who actually love music. What kind of music were you playing back then? Well... I played a mixture of stuff. We picked stuff that nobody had ever heard before. Do you remember ever remember a group, Alex Harvey? No. They're from Australia. And there's another group there called the Skyhooks. Okay. These are a couple of groups you should look into. They were almost performance groups. And we had a group of guys that were really into performance. We had uh, on stage, with we had a Mylar backdrop. Orange cabinets for the PA. Uh, we had mannequins on stage dressed up with boas and then they they would light on fire at the end of the night i mean it was crazy stuff so we really had performance and then we played a few originals here and there but we didn't uh, we played mostly covers and we played stuff that, and we played queen tiger mother down i mean we had all, all the stuff going on and the band was really quite good and we had a following and then we started, like most bands, you start sneaking in a few originals. But I kind of started writing that. But I really started writing when I got picked up by another band and moved to Toronto, which was a big deal. Now, what what happened to that first band? You said, you know, you guys seem to have a following. Did you guys just go your separate ways? Or was an incident that happened? Or what, what happened? Well, I got offered a job with the band that had done a few records. And they uh, offered to fly me out to to uh, Toronto and join a band that was going in the studio to record. the The surprise to me was it was like one of these, "Hey, you want a surprise?" I got to town and they said, "Well, let's write some songs." And I was forced to write, so I wrote every song with one of the guys in the band, one of the other guys, every song on the album. And we went in the studio shortly thereafter. It was just like bang, bang, bang. You know how you get kind of forced to do something. Sometimes you just do it. And then you realize later you didn't really know how you did it, but you did it. So I kind of got forced, uh, you know, pushed to the wall, and then I just started writing songs. It's kind of a neat way to do it, really. It's kind of like you shoved in the corner until you write a song, and then so I did it. 
and then record it with the guy. And the guy I recorded with did a whole bunch of Guess Who albums. He did a couple of Alice Cooper albums. Uh, it was a beautiful studio in York, Yorkville called uh, Nimbus Nine. Um, a lot of great records were recorded there. Bob Seger recorded there. So I was in good company and I was forced to write songs. And I did. And I, I lasted three years with these guys before I decided I wanted something different. What's the feeling when you go into a real nice studio at a young age? You know, a studio that you said so many people have recorded there. As a performer, are you overwhelmed when you look around and think about the magic that has been done in there? Completely, completely overwhelmed. But here's what happens when you put the headphones on and the music starts coming and you start singing and it starts sounding good. That's when it really kicks in that you're in a comfortable place. I've always felt very comfortable in the studio. But at first, when you first walk in, you go, oh, my God. Because you know, so many great records were recorded there. Right? Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, Alice Cooper, the Guess Who made some fantastic albums in there. I mean... It, it, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, to be honest with you. But I wanted this, and that's what I wanted, and I was there. It's kind of like you want the Super Bowl, and then you finally you're at the Super Bowl. This, to me, I felt like it was a Super Bowl moment. Now, when you left that band, was it neutral? Did you leave? I mean, what happened? You know what? I wanted to work harder than they wanted to work, and I couldn't talk them into it. They just said, we're fine, we're, we're fine just doing what we're doing. And I said, you know, guys, that's not what I really want to do. So I said to them, I'm just, I'm leaving. I just packed up and I, I took off. I drove across Canada, stopped in Calgary. 40 below zero, went out to see Johnny Rivers playing a nightclub one night. After he finished, I walked out the back door. I look up at this warehouse. I'm hearing this noise coming out of this warehouse. It kind of looked like a warehouse out of a... Uh, an old black and white movie where they fixed old transit buses. All the windows were covered with paint and paper. And there's this little tiny side half door. I opened it up and Paul Dean is sitting in the middle. I didn't even know who it was. In the middle of this huge warehouse on a chair with a ghetto blaster and a guitar and a small amp. Well, I looked in on him and for some reason he looked over at me. He said, come on in. It was one of those kind of things. And it was, I, I remember it to this day because it was so cold. And he had this big heater on the roof blowing hot air and kind of into warm about 40 below zero. Place was all windows, tough to heat. We ended up sitting and writing two songs that I'd, I'd never even met this guy before. Turned out he was from a, quite a famous Canadian band. And when he went home for Christmas, he got the note, don't come back. So he basically got fired. And he was in a pretty desperate, crappy mood. And uh, I thought I felt it was my job to kind of cheer him up a little bit to say, listen, not the end of the road. I said, I just left my band too. And we never even talked about joining up. We just naturally felt good together and wrote, wrote some songs that night. We wrote a couple of songs that night. And then I took a job while I was there so I could earn enough money to come to LA to see my brother who was living in LA at the time. So I wanted a couple of grand to, you know, gas money and whatever. So I took a job just shoveling gravel in the middle of winter into some brand new apartment buildings and moving plywood and freezing my butt off. And when I was, wasn't working, I was hanging out with Paul Dean, writing songs because we've been together 42 years now. So how did it go from just a guy shoveling uh, gravel to writing a few songs 
to forming Loverboy. I mean, there, there's, and, and as you said, it's been 42 years, but how did, what was the step? I mean, when did you guys say, okay, we got to, we get along good. Let's make this happen. What did you do? First off, you're, if you're shoveling gravel and throwing plywood up from one floor to another in the dead of winter, 40 below zero, you really want, don't want to do that for the rest of your life. So keep in mind, it, was, it wasn't something I wanted to do. What I really enjoyed doing was working with Paula uh, during the nighttime before or uh, after work and stuff. But here's what happened. We started writing some songs, and then we brought in a little recorder so we could record some tracks. And because I was a drummer, I'd, I'd put the drum tracks down. Paul would play the guitar tracks, and he put the bass tracks down. Well, there was a guy in town in another band. His name was Doug Johnson. Now, Doug Johnson has been with Loverboy almost as long as I have. And he he was playing in another band, but the other band was only playing once in a while. So we asked him to come over to this warehouse and throw down some keyboard tracks. Next thing you know, we had about six or eight four-track songs with, you know, harmonies. We were bouncing tracks. We were just, you know, doing it on our own. And so people started hearing these tracks, and they went, those are really good songs. And like, we're no bullshit around, but those are really good songs. So Paul and I, after a while, started thinking, maybe we should try this, you know. He was a little bit tender from, from leaving his band. I was kind of not looking to jump right back into another band. I wanted to experience a little bit of California and stuff first, right? So we decided to give it a shot. Then we had to come up with a name, Christ who who thought we would have come up with a name like Loverboy? Ooh, yeah. Good Lord, is is it? That's false. I know, but now is it? Is, did it really come from a dream Paul had? Is that is that true? You know what? We had a, a night off. We were hanging out with our girlfriends. They're all reading Cosmopolitan and Vogue magazines while we're watching this movie, having popcorn, just relaxing. Probably on the weekend. I looked at the girls reading these Cosmopolitan magazines and all these cover girls, and I said, you know. What if we called the band Cover Boy? Cover Boy. A play on words from Cover Girl. <laughs> so I said, you know, that's not that bad. And that was the end of the night. And we said, you know, and Paul called me the next morning. He said, I had a dream that we called ourselves Lover Boy. And I said, Paul, if we do that, we'll get the shit kicked out of us for sure. <laughs> and I and they said, yeah, or, or it might be great. And I said, you know what? It's tongue in cheek. Like a lot of our lyrics are tongue in cheek. So, uh, you know, we might have something there, so we decided to go with it, and then that's how it, that's how it happened. It was very organic. Now, Lover Boys together. When do you start trying to get a record deal? Right off the bat, or do you start getting club dates, or what? What is the transition? Because I know you couldn't get signed right away in the U.S., so I, I believe Canada, a Canadian label, had to sign you. Right. We never played a, sh- a concert in El- Calgary. We never played a concert. It was Paul and I, and we Doug was was in whenever we needed him because he had to basically quit the band he was with, but he didn't quit right away. And we ended up hanging out with the guy who was kind of co-managing us. And he had a nightclub, and he was a cool guy named Lou Blair. Lou Blair came to Paul and I and said, "Listen, if you guys want to get real serious, we got to go to Vancouver and get a hold of uh, Bruce Allen. He's." a manager who's just basically wrapped up a 10-year run with BTO. So he managed BTO and all the good things that happened there. He 
He's got an office. He's got connections. He's the guy we got to see. So we ended up going to uh, Vancouver. And, you know, we had nothing, you know, really. We're sleeping on the floors in people's houses and stuff, people's apartments. We're staying on the on the spare couch kind of thing. And it was it was a it was a ballsy move, but we ended up talking Bruce Allen into managing this group. And Bruce Allen and Lou Blair together went out and basically talked record companies into coming into town. So we put a band together. Uh, we filled the spots with the drums. We got the drummer. We got the bass player. We had the keyboard player. It was Paul and I. We we practiced. We did some shows. And then we got some nightclub bookings where the record company guys were flown in from all over the place. And about eight of them said, we don't hear it. And that's fine. And one guy from Toronto came and said, I hear this. This is like, this is good. This is really good. He said, I'm going to, I'm going to get, get you guys some money to go and organize a recording session. And that's how it happened. And it, it took a while to get the right record company. And it turned out to be Columbia records, CBS, which is now Sony. Um, and it was a Canadian deal right off the bat, but as soon as I think the first album started selling, we sold a million copies in Canada. They said, the United States grabbed us immediately and said, okay, boys, you're down here in New York now. New York's going to handle you from here on out. And that's, it was almost magical. And like I tell a lot of people, there's a lot of talent involved in usually a good project. Uh, there's a lot of hard work, a lot of sweat, blood, sweat, and tears, as it were. But one of the things you can't really count on is timing and good luck. And for some reason, all those things were working for us. The timing was just right. We had some good luck on our side, and we had a lot of good people working for us, working with us. Now, when you went into the studio for that first album, how was it when it now, it's not like when you went into the studio before with the other band, where you joined that band. This was your and Paul's project. What is it like when you go into the studio and you're basically the shot taker. I mean, you, you're the shot caller. I'm sorry. I mean, what's it like? Was it? A, did you have a different attitude? Were you relaxed because you'd already been in a studio? I mean, what is that like when it's a it's a diff, you're you're at a different table now? It's not like this is Mike Reno's band. It was fun, man. It was very exciting. It was super exciting. We had uh, set up in the studio that had a big, huge mixing board and a huge, big room. They used to record orchestras in there. It was a very, very nice uh, uh, deal. It was, we had uh, a guy we really loved working the engineering. He was from another band. He was a musician. He was doing the board. The producer was, was saying, let's play. Let's see how it goes. So we would set up our gear. And instead of playing everything single file, like one at a time, we just started playing the songs. And the producer was, uh, I think he was plugged in enough and, and made the right decisions to just let us play the songs. And all he really did is help us organize the project and move on to the next song and keep good takes and keep us from killing ourselves if we were arguing about something. Um, it was sounded good and we were super excited and the songs were working. The producer was going, you know, this is good, thumbs up, let's go. Let's do the next song. It didn't take us long to record this first album. We just started playing. Tell me about the recording of Turn Me Loose, because I love that song. It's just, that's one of those things, you know, there's some songs when you're driving, like if you hear the beginning of uh, um, Sweet Emotion, 
you know, the, the bass. And just, when you hear the beginning of Turn Me Loose, the, like, how did, I mean, what was the process of making that song? And then you kick in the killer vocals. I mean, it's one of those songs that it's just, you remember it. I mean, did you write the lyrics? How did that song come about? It's basically a personal relationship song. You know, I had, a, I was ready to, uh, that's how it started. Now everybody thinks about it as leaving their job or leaving a marriage or leaving a relationship or changing something up because they want to be, you know, the way I wrote it was I, I wrote it on the bass guitar. I played do, 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 do. I play every time I picked up the bass guitar, I played this lick. Paul looked at me one day and says, if you play that lick one more fucking time, I'm going to smash this guitar over your head. And I said, dude, why don't you just play something along with it? And he was half joking, but you know what I mean? It was like irritating him then. So I said, I'm going to do the drums like this. And then I'm going to come in with the keyboards. And then I'm going to come in with the bass. And you're going to play this. He says, okay, let's do it. So we started writing it up and, and organizing it. And then we wrote, uh, we sat and wrote the lyrics. Uh, Turn Be Loose just came. It just came to me. And it's basically about a relationship that I ended. And I, I just wanted to get out. You know, Turn Be Loose, I got to do it my way. Everybody's trying to boss me around. I'm not taking it. I'm no way at all, dude. That's basically the whole attitude of the song. And something that not a lot of people know. The song was recorded. And at the end, I think Paul was taking around with some guitar parts. Maybe putting a solo on or something. I came to the studio and I walked in and said hi to everybody. Paul's in the, in the, in the, in the control booth, dinking around with the, with the guitar parts. And I said to the guys, I want to sing that song again. I want to sing Turn Me Lips. And he was, they was working on a completely other song. So the process of doing this would mean you'd have to take the two inch tape off, put it away, put another, put the Turn Me Lips tape back on. You have to align the board, all 24 tracks, and you do it kind of with the screwdriver and you align the balance of the tracking. Then you have to run it through the mixer and bring up the whole mix. This is a process that takes about an hour and a half, okay? So those guys said, we're not fucking doing that. I, says, I said, you got to do it. I said, I'm feeling it. He says, well, you did a great job already. I said, I got to do it again. And I really had to talk them into it. Right? And so they finally do it. They turn it up. I put the headphones on, I sing it, I change some of the words, and I threw the scream in. I gotta get rid of that. I gotta stop. Call from unavailable. I won't think I'll take that. Telemarketer. <laughs> we have a landline here. It's only because apparently you have to have a landline if you have uh, any security systems. Oh, let's just turn that right on. I don't even know how to use these phones. My wife uses them. Anyways, <laughs> we get calls all day long for us to, to, to provide money for some cancer fund. It was just, you know, it's all very relative. And so we do a lot of charity work. But anyway, so I re-sang the song, threw the scream in, made the whole song a really bit, in my mind, better. And then... I walk outside and I look up and it's a full fucking moon and it's just a big glowing moon and it's just staring right at me at the front door of the recording studio and I just went, oh my God, you know, it's true. So the, the moon really does affect, uh, you know, how things happen for sure. Now, the album, you know, you said the first one sells really good. Who do they put you on tour with? Because they're going to make you go out on the road. I mean, you know, did they put you a big American long tour or how did they book you guys? 
like I said, timing, good people working for you, and luck. You know who they put us out with for like eight months? Kansas. One of the best bands in the world. One of the best singers in all the rock bands. Steve Walsh. Loved him. Still love him. Whenever I hear a Kansas song on the radio, I just crank it up. I mean, they don't come much better than Kansas. We got to know those guys. We toured with them. We played every night. We were working the first album. And we were so lucky to have that tour. And people to, to this day still say, we saw you with Kansas in 1980. You know, it's like, it's pretty cool. I think, so I, think was, I think I may have seen you at the Spectrum in Philly because I, I, I went to that tour. I would have been a junior in high school. And I think... I, if if you were in Philly with Kansas, then I saw you guys. We were there. That was us. Yeah. Now, okay. So as you're on the road with them, when do you start putting the second together album together? Do you are you did you already start writing on the road? Because everyone people don't understand. I, I try because I talk to a lot of musicians and people don't understand that when you're in a band and you have a hit album, at least back then. It's not all fun and games because you have the, ra- the record company going, you got to come out with another album. Then you guys had the pressure because the first album sold great. So people don't understand it's not like this big cakewalk as a rock star. It's a lot of hard work. I mean, so how were you guys getting ready to do the second album? Well, first off, we had some songs in the bag. You know, back then you just put nine or ten songs on a, on a record because that's just the way it is. You can only put so much on a record on the vinyl that's just uh you know that's the physics of vinyl so in order for it to sound big and rich deep you can only put so much material on a piece of plastic like that so we had some songs left over so that was good and then we were a sound check we were kind of dinking around with stuff we had a couple of days off here and there we would work on songs when we got home we went right back into the studio and started cutting tracks for uh, the new album get lucky and, you know, we didn't know what we were going to call it or anything. It's just that the, the reason it ended up getting called Get Lucky is because in the song Lucky Ones, I just threw an ad-lib scream in there, let's get lucky, you know, one of those kind of things. And when the record company kind of heard all the finished products, they, they handed it around and one of the, they handed it around to a guy who was considering doing the artwork and he says, that's got to be the title of what the guy says right there, Get Lucky, that's perfect. And, and he says, what do these guys look like? So he saw us some pictures of us playing live and we were all wearing leather. The reason we wore leather is because our manager's publicist, uh, her husband had a leather shop in Vancouver, really popular one called Dental Leather. And she said, I talked to my husband and he said, you guys can go down there and get whatever you want. And uh, you can pay back whenever you guys start making some money. You can pay it back. And so we all went down there, of course, a bunch of greedy little Poor people, we grabbed like four or five pairs of pants, some jackets, some cool leather shirts, belts, everything. We must have owned thousands. And then, so we had, I had green pants, and we had blue pants, we had gray pants, we had black pants. It's all leather. So we're going out on tour. We got all the stuff. I put the leather pants on. They were the best fitting ones, so I just wore those most of the time. So the guy sees the red leather pants. He comes up with the name, with the album title, Get Lucky. And he just says, I got an idea for this. We put the fingers in front, you know, of the jeans. Boom. You got yourself an album cover, which, by the way, young Steven, made uh, one of the, it was in the top 1,000 album cover book. Coffee table books is about this thing. I thought that was kind of cool. I mean, we're in that book. 
Well, everybody remembers that cover. Now, is that you or is it someone else? I've heard a bunch of different stories. Tell me the story. Who's on the cover? You don't really expect me to tell you that, do you, Steve? <laughs> no. Really, you really expect me to tell you that? Yeah, why not? <laughs> well, the other guys, they're going to get all jealous. and they're gonna, you know, They're going to say, I heard this interview you said it was you. How do you know it wasn't me? Uh, I don't know. I, I could tell you the story, but I'd have to... Uh, kill me? Yeah, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> now, now, tell me... Nice try, Steve. That was a good try. I, I tried, good I tried. Time. Now, tell me, uh, you know, the videos. MTV was so important. And, and the uh, Working for the Weekend video, everyone remembers it because you come out. What, what was your experience in shooting videos? Did you enjoy it or did you not like them? Okay. First off, they weren't even called videos at the time. They said we're going to get some perform. We're going to film some performance pieces of you guys in Albany, New York. On your way through, you got a couple of days off. We arranged you to go to the Shrine Theater. We've got a crew set up there. We got clothes. We got extra clothes. We got lights. We got sound, and we got cameras. What we're going to do is you're going to play song. Put some clothes on. Look good. Make sure you all look good. Get up on stage here and play some songs. So we played songs for like three days. And they shot film. And they put smoke on and had the lights on. And it was like, cut and do it again. And then we did and change. We didn't know what the hell we were doing. But CBS asked us to do it. You know, Columbia Records says, could you do this? So, you know, we're, we're figuring it's a pretty big deal. You know, you walk into this place, it's like you're doing a movie. So we felt like this was good. Next thing you know, they clip all the pieces together and they send three videos, which they became called, well, they weren't called videos at the beginning. They were performance pieces. This new, uh, this new TV station called MTV is going to be a 24-hour music station all about rock and roll. And Loverboy sent three videos to MTV the first week they were open. Now talk about timing and good luck once again. You know what I'm saying? So just because they didn't have enough to play 24 hours, we got played over and over again in that 24-hour period every day. And then people, you know, started sending in. So we were like, you know, we were like the, the jump starts for this company, you know. It, it was amazing. We went from we could do anything we wanted to, we had to be careful where we went because people's yeah. recognition. I was going to ask you, because, I mean, everyone who watched MTV, and you're right, because we, we were one of the neighborhoods I grew up that had it from the beginning. And all of a sudden, musicians were recognizable. Before, you knew it from the album cover, you know, or you saw them live. But, you know, you know when you go to a concert, if you're in the upper deck, they're this big, and you don't really see them. In, in the videos, they're right in front of you. So, I mean, when did you know... I mean, what was a crazy thing that happened when you knew that everyone's watching this video and you had no more privacy for a little bit? There used to be notes on the, uh, when we were on tour, there'd be room service stuff. Sometimes there was even a, a, a small little person hiding in, in the rack below, you know, usually where they put the food to keep warm. There'd be notes and phone numbers on our, on our shower curtains. There'd be people phoning us at all times. We had to start creating new names to stay in hotels. Because if we registered in the hotels on our original name, we'd never get any rest at all because the phone would just ring off the hook. We used to be able to run down the street and get a USA Today or a newspaper or pick up something. 
we realized that we couldn't just do that anymore. And it was, it happened. It, it totally happened. And I understand it wasn't as crazy as, uh, let's say, Michael Jackson, maybe, but we definitely had a taste of what it was like to become, uh, well, go from faceless to uh, everybody knows who you are. Now, for you, as you're getting bigger and you're playing bigger venues, I mean, now you're headlining and stuff like that, how do you develop as a front man? How do you sit there and sit there and bring it up a level? Because like anything, it's like you've been doing it for a while. So you're still, you're the focus. How do you develop the skills? I mean, do you have to sit there and really plan things out or you just go up there and feel the music and just go with it? You know, we never made any plans, you know, other than the fact that we thought we might want to try to wear, you know, wear certain colors. You know, it was kind of like, let's wear red and black, maybe yellow, you know, like, Let's, let's stand out here. Instead of, you know, the, the blue jean thing that was happening with the Doobie Brothers and 10 years after, you know, we were going to put a little effort into our clothes. But as far as jumping on stage and playing, uh, Paul and I had a routine where we split the audience down the middle and we got one side swearing at the other. And that was kind of a cool deal. We never took, we, we tried it out. We got the crowd going. We talked to them. You know what it was? We came right down to the level of everybody in the audience because we used to love going to concerts ourselves. And we uh, we just did it naturally. We, we didn't talk about it, really, to be honest with you, Steve. Now, now, when did you start wearing the headband? Because, you know, you just so you know, you made it cool for people. Before, the only people that I knew who wore headbands were, like, kids who took karate class or like some dude who was just like a biker, but you made it cool to wear a head. What the? What made you decide to do that? Did you know that it had such a lasting impact on all us 17, 18, 19, and 20-year-olds in the East Coast? You know what? I never even thought about it. You know what? How I started wearing headbands. I was, we're playing some nightclubs when we first got started. And if you remember the nightclubs, the lights were probably about seven or eight feet away from the, from the stage. And there were hundred or thousand watt car laps that provided a lot of heat. And we're rocking and we're moving and we're gigging and we're playing and the lights are shining on us. I don't know why this keeps happening. I can't turn it off. I don't know how to work it. So the light the lights are coming in, that we're sweating like crazy. We take a break. I'm I'm wearing like a black t shirt. I uh, I take the black shirt. I cut the sleeves off, and for the next set, I put the sleeve of the black T-shirt on my head to soak up, you know, to soak up all the, all the, the sweat from my eyes. I couldn't see it. There was so much sweat in my eyes. I was, like, blinded. So that's really where it came from, because of the heat of the stage and the heat of us playing rock. I cut the sleeve off my T-shirt, put it on my forehead, and then the next sleeve so I was kind of playing with one sleeve I don't know if people ever noticed that and then for the last set I cut the other sleeve off right and I put it on because the other sleeve was soaking wet so after doing that I was going through shirts left right and center I, fig- I figured I'd go go buy some uh, bandanas and I ended up put, get putting on a red bandana and that was the end you know that was the end that was the end of it right there well now you guys you guys are you know a huge band why did you break up for the first time? Was it too much success too quick? Was it people just, you know, once again, I talked to a lot of musicians who say you just never have a break and it's like living, being with someone constantly. What happened that first time? Do you know, it wasn't really, a, it, I wouldn't even consider it a breakup, Steve. What, what we did 
is we came home from touring for like eight years in a row, maybe even longer. And record companies decided they didn't want another record right away. Uh, the Seattle grunge thing was happening, so that was crazy. And that's all they really wanted. The record companies really got sucked in thinking that's the only thing that's going to happen now is this grunge stuff, which, you know, and at the time, and then radio stations stopped playing us. And next thing you know, there was this big gap. And what happened out of that is country Western got huge because it started to be like rock with the country lyrics and country twang. But all the musicians that weren't playing, they joined country bands. And it happened to... To everybody, it happened to all the groups that I know, everybody. And then all of a sudden, we had two years off. And so we just took the kids fishing, really. You know, we just hung out. It's just actually nice for the first time in a long time we had a break. We never told anybody we're breaking up. We just said we're not going to play for a while. And then shortly thereafter, what was created? Classic rock radio. Because people started complaining what happened to... Kansas, what happened to Journey, what happened to Foreigner, what happened to Cheap Trick, what happened to Boston, what happened to Loverboy. We need, and so a radio, the smart guys started programming classic rock radio, and that's how it is today. And you know what? It's just like it wasn't really a breakup, it was more like record companies freaked out and radio stations freaked out. So I just said, the hell with them, I'm just gonna go fishing, man. When, how, you know, I mean, it's easy to say go fishing, but this it, music was in your blood. When, when it first happened, did you, were you hurt? I mean, did you feel hurt? Like, wait a second, you know, we have fan, fan we were on MTV, we have fans that love us, and now no one wants, the, the, the record companies and the radios don't want to play us. I mean, how do you deal with that as an artist? Because you know the stuff's good. You've sold millions of albums. It's not like they're like someone like, oh, they were, they were a fluke. They had one big song. How do you deal with that mentally? Well, like I said, it was kind of really hard. It was just a total slap in the face, just like you thought. A slap in the face. It really hurt the ego. The guys in the band went, what do you mean we're taking some time off, you know? And I said, guys, why don't we just hang out a little bit, you know? Maybe do some other things. So some of the other guys just did stuff. Our drummer drummed with a couple of really good bands, you know, uh, I, I dabbled with doing a solo record. Paul did a solo record and just had fun. Like we're talking about, we did eight, nine years of, of working. We didn't have a chance to do what we wanted to do after we, you know, after eight or nine years goes by, you said, really like to try. So it kind of all happened at the right time. It was a slap in the face, but it was kind of a nice break, to be honest with you. Now, how did how did Almost Paradise come up? How did you, how did you get in, into that... The duet for that that song well we're on tour and my manager came out and he came to my room and he said i got a, i got a song they're asking you to sing he sent me the song i put it in the player i played the demo i i looked at him i said i love this song It'll be, it's going to be huge and he looked at me and he said you can pick any female artist you want to sing it you you tell me who it is and i'll go get her and immediately I said, I'd like to do it with Ann Wilson. It was my choice, and I picked her immediately. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but the Hart used to live in Vancouver. I think they spent about 11 years in Vancouver. They played the club circuit. Uh, we all used to go down and catch them. They were the band that played all the great Led Zeppelin tracks. And then they'd throw, you know, 
one of their originals in here and there. They recorded their first bunch of albums in Vancouver at Mushroom Records, same studio we recorded Get Lucky in. So there was a bit of history there. And as it turned out, we were on tour, Hart was on tour. We had a three-day break and and flew to uh, Chicago. I was I flew to whatever got to Chicago. We went into a studio called Pierce Arrow. It used to be an old car factory back in the day. That Pierce Arrow was a, a very famous car back before our time, of course, Steve. And uh, it's a beautiful studio. Our producer uh, Keith Olson, who's produced many bands over the years, he met me, met us there, played the bed track, and got to the studio. I was already there. We sat and had a couple of beer, just a good old fashioned Canadian greeting, you know, sit down, say hi, have a couple of beer. We're in the studio. Uh, they closed the curtain in the, in the control room. We sat and talked, got to know each other face to face. There was a microphone set up. And after about a half an hour, I just asked, do you know the song? And she said, yeah, I, 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 know, I know the song. I said, do you want to give it a shot? And then I said, okay, we're going to give it a shot. So they opened the curtain, you know, gave us a little privacy. They're probably listening to everything we said. <laughs> I think about that now. We basically, they run the track. We stood up face to face, sang the song one time. Keith also puts his hands in the air and goes, thank you very much. One take. One take. That's it. Oh, wow. It was so that was really great. Well, now, now, you know, we said, we talked about how classic rock started coming back, which is great. What was it like for you guys? You know, you're getting, and you're popular, and you've always been popular for us people who love rock. What was it like when you played the Olympics? You played in Vancouver, right? Oh, yeah, that was kind of fun. It was kind of weird because there's a serious a security around anything like the Olympics, right? You have to have a certain badge on, and you got to do a certain way, and you got to stay a certain place, and you got to just do exactly what they tell you. It was televised around the world, which was a little stressful. Uh, it was in a big stadium that held 80,000 people. They had the super, they had it really done up nice. Uh, the, the color of the place, it was fantastic. It was like a dream dream experience. And uh, it was a real honor to be asked because, you know, this is the, the worldwide event. And uh, I kind of forgot I did that, but it, boy, that was fun. That was fun. Thanks for asking. Yeah, now, now nowadays, you know, well, of course, before the shutdown, when you guys start, you know, when you started getting back together, I know you lost a member, which is hard, but when you start to get, getting back on stage, does it automatically come back to you because you have been playing? I mean, you know, those eight years in the beginning, you did so many damn shows. It's probably like, you know, in, they say in dog years, you know, one year is nice. It's probably like, you know, 20 years of performing what was it like when you guys now even now or just when you first started really playing a lot again was it easy or did you have to really sit there and get used to each other and feel each other out again somewhat god that's a great question steve do you want to hear how it happened this is this is great a friend of well it's not great for a friend but a friend of ours needed some money for cancer treatment that the uh uh the medical system was not providing this treatment unless you pay for it yourself. And it was expensive. So we decided to throw a, uh, a concert to raise money. And it was on the, uh, the expo site. We had uh, Expo 86 there. So the site was still there. It was a really big uh, 
big, I would call it a big nightclub, but it was huge. It would hold maybe 2,500 people. So the plan was we were going to go and play. We all just showed up. We actually went to, we had, it was great to see everybody. We, we kicked open one of the guitars. A set fell out. We grabbed the set. We just put it on stage and we played it. Boom. No rehearsals. Just played it. And it was perfect. And the crowd just went. They just went from all talking to each other to just looking right at us, and they rocked. And we did it. We had a great job, a great show, rather. And uh, no practice. And that's how it was. The set list fell out of the guitar case. And you know who else played on there? Brian Adams played. Uh, bon Jovi played. Uh, Motley Crue played. I think some of the guys at Aerosmith were there. They played. It was one of those things where whoever was there came up and did something. And so we did an hour or something, or more, maybe an hour and a half. I can't remember, but we didn't want to hog the whole evening. But And it was just everybody used the gear that's there. They just get up there and play. And it was a very, once again, organic type deal. And it got us back together. When we walked off the stage all sweaty past the manager, he looked at me and he goes, I guess I better book some shows. So, <laughs> And that's really how we got back at it. Now, right there. Exactly how it happened. What... What do you, why, what's the reason that people still love Loverboy? You know, I mean, as you said, 42 years, you're still, I mean, when I saw the tickets going on, it's you, REO, Speedwagon, and Sticks. I'm like, I saw all them people at the Spectrum. I said, you know, it's just one of those things. And it's, and it, you know, it's so funny. We Like, for me, I think classic rock is like the group before you. Like, you guys are my generation. You know, you're not classic, yeah. unless I consider myself classic, which I am, but I don't consider myself that. What do you think... <laughs> I think you're a classic dude, man. <laughs> what do you think... What do you think has made people just love you and made your 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 songs still... You go out and you will hear them, and even, like, young kids know them. What do you think... Why do you think that is? We're trying to figure that out because for the last... Uh... I'm going to say eight years. For the last eight years of touring, there's so many young people and they come right up to the front and a lot of them are used are dressed like the videos. So I think what they've done is, now that the internet became so popular, they've researched the band. They show up, they bounce around, they sing the lyrics, they got the headbands on and it's a younger crowd. I'm telling you, it's ridiculous. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. And I think it has a lot to do with either raiding their parents' record collection or the internet. They're digging up the old stuff, watching the old videos, listening to the old tunes. And I think it's probably because some of the music that's happening right now that is they don't like it. And that's maybe they're old souls. Uh, they're definitely rock and rollers, that's for sure. I'm just glad they do it. Now, one last question. What's the future of Loverboy? Are you guys going to keep releasing new songs how long are you going to keep this up? Because you're still out there, you're still rocking, you're still kicking ass, and people are still going to come see you. What, wait a minute, what is Mike Reno? What does Mike Reno see in his future? Well, if I can tour, I'm going to tour. Since we've had two years off, it's a tough question because we're dying to get back. We have an excellent fan base. Every time we play anywhere, it's sold out. Um, I can't see stopping doing this for the... Uh, the the near future, I think we're going to do it. We're just going to keep doing it as long as we're loving it. I think as long as we're loving every minute of it. 
Well, that's great, Mike. I want to thank you so much for coming on. This is great. As I said, I'm a fan. I've been a fan. I was joking around with my wife. I, was, I, was, I, I have to ask you this. How many times do people come up and say to you, hey, are you working for the weekend? How many times have you heard that in your life? Hey, listen, people hand me stuff that's like, uh, you know, the beer cozies. Working for the weekends on the beer cozy, you know, they think they'll throw up my golf bag. You know what I mean? And it's, it's a nice, it's nice to have stuff people recognize, you know. I, it's an honor, and I, I respect it. Really do. Well, I want to thank you. People, go to the Lo- Loverboy's uh, website. Listen to her new single, uh, Release. You can find it on YouTube, too. Go download it. Uh, buy tickets. They're coming back. They're coming to a vengeance. They're coming to America, and we're going to be loving it because I'll be there. So, people, check out Loverboy. Look up Mike Reno. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find 895 episodes up there. Email me, cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. Instagram, at coopertalk1. Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.